morning again. Doug, I appreciate your uh, communion meditation because um, I think uh, you know you the, the the word that stuck out to me was or the thing that you said the most that I really appreciated was you said it's a time to be honest uh, because that's when we reflect on ourselves. You know that's what Scripture tells us to do before we take communion to be honest with ourselves uh, and look inwardly, um, ask ask for that cleansing. Well, if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Mark chapter 8. That's where, uh, where we're going to be today. And uh, we're going to look at one of the strangest miracle stories that, uh, if not the strangest miracle story, that is, uh, is found in the text. And there's a little bit of, of humor to it, I think. But it's for a, uh, for a purpose. I also want to say how much I appreciate Ken preaching for me last week. I know he did, uh, did an outstanding job, and I'm grateful uh, I'm grateful to be a part of a church that has so many talented people that can uh, stand in. You know, um, you've heard me say this a lot. Uh, we're, uh, we're a small church, but small doesn't equal weak. You know, we've, I think uh, we have a lot, of, a lot of power and a lot of really, really talented people among us. And I'm grateful for that. All those who teach, speak, lead communion, sing. Uh, serve behind the scenes, handling our uh, audio visual, whatever it might be. I'm grateful, grateful for it. Well, as you can see, the message title today is Mission Clarification. Because sometimes we need clarification on things, do we not? Yes, we do. All those who have been married for any length of the time, say amen. amen. Yes, because we sometimes need some clarification on what actually has been told to us, or said to us, or what the expectations are. Am I right? I spent Friday night doing uh, premarital counseling with a couple that's fixing to get married. And that's what we talked about. Clarifying things. Communicate, 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 communicate. And you know as well as I do, that even when you communicate well, you're not always going to get everything right. Am I right? So we need... We need clarification to help us understand things better. And uh, hopefully as I move through this message, it will become clear to you what I'm talking about. When I was going through my clinical pastoral education training, that's my, my chaplaincy training, we had to do something that nobody really, really liked to do. The way you do that training, it's referred to as action reflection. You do an event, and then you sit down and you reflect on it. And the tool that you use to reflect on that is called the verbatim. And this is where you talk about an encounter that you had with a patient, and you write it out word for word. What happens? This is what the patient said. This is what the chaplain said. This is what the other person said in the room. You know, And it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Okay, And you are talking about... I mean, you're literally laying out what you did throughout the visit. You're, you know, did you pause? Did the person cry? Did they, uh, did they sigh a lot? You know, those kind of things. I mean, just every single detail you're trying to get into this verbatim. Then you get to the end of it, and then you have to talk about the, uh, the, the social stuff that you learn. You know, was this person married? Uh, do they have a family? Do they have a church background? What's their theological understanding if they have that? You know, and then you've got to go to what you 
felt? You know, what did you, what are your evaluations? How did your theology help you? All of this stuff. And so early on, I was into this process and I had this encounter with this, uh, this patient. She had been, a, she was an open heart surgery patient. I got a page to go see her. I went in. I, I mean, as soon as I opened the door, she says, please come pray for me. And so your natural reaction is what? To start praying for somebody. Anyway, the whole visit went well. I felt like it went really good. I wrote this verbatim. I thought this would be a good one to use. And it was absolutely terrible. Because what you do is you read it with your peers. You assign them the different parts. And they read it. And then you go through and you read your, you know, your thoughts on it. Your evaluations of the room, of the peer person, and of yourself and then your peers go through and they kind of pick it apart and they rip a new one in it. Okay. And that's exactly what happened. And so I thought I had done really well. I thought I had really nailed this visit until we sat down and they started going through it and absolutely pulling that thing apart. And it was completely embarrassing for me. Okay. Because now as an Enneagram one, you don't want to be wrong about anything. Right? I don't think I'm wrong about anything. Why would I purposely hold a wrong position? Okay? And that's not just true for ones. That's true of everybody. Everybody thinks they're right about everything. Nobody holds a wrong position on purpose, right? So until I enlighten you, you're going to think you're right about everything. Right? (laughs) The ones definitely understand what I'm saying. They don't agree with me, but they understand what I'm saying. They will enlighten me about how I'm wrong about this later. But, you know, as somebody who doesn't like that, who does not like out in the open peer review, this is what you have to do. Okay? And it's not fun. You're on the hot seat. You're sweating in places you didn't know you could sweat from when it's over with. But, you know, and so I did this. And it was, you know, it was, it was, it was embarrassing because I realized that I had blown it. Okay? I realized, man, I did not do this. I did not do this the right way. Finally, the instructor asked, she said, well, what did you learn from that? And then it, that kind of all cleared it up. Because then I remembered that this whole process is not pick out the best ones you think you've nailed it and go and talk about it. It's, hey, here's what I did. This was okay, but this is what I should have done. Had I been thinking clearly, this is what I would have said or not said. You know, And so that is the way that it, it should have been done. Okay, and then you ask for help on other blind spots that you may have missed. You're asking for clarification. And once that sort of cleared up in my head, you know, all the rest of those verbatims got a lot easier. They got a lot easier to do. Well, sometimes, sometimes we think we have a good grasp on things only to find out later that we didn't fully understand what was going on. You know, and this can be especially painful or especially embarrassing uh, when it has something to do with our family or with our job. Uh, it can be detrimental when we didn't fully understand something with our finances only to realize that we have made a very, very crucial mistake or, or, or another responsibility where we thought we understood it, we didn't because of it, is things kind of get out of whack. Well, in this text that we're going to look at today from Mark chapter 8, Mark is going to tell us a story 
that when you first read it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if we'll hang on till the end, we'll realize that eventually he's trying to take us somewhere and he's going to clarify what he's saying. So let's start reading in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. Then the man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him, then he sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now then, to me, that is a strange miracle that, that Jesus does for a couple of reasons. One, kind of the way he does it, but there's something interesting that happens there. And I want to, to call your attention to it in verse 25, where it says, again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored. Then he clearly saw, then he clearly saw everything. Okay? And this is the second time he's touched the guy's eyes. Okay? It's not the first time, it's the second time. The first time he does it, the guy, Jesus says, what can you see? He says, I can see, but it's so indistinct, I can't tell whether it's people or trees. Okay? So Jesus touches his eyes again. And the second time, the second time he can see. And you realize that there is a question that is begging to be asked from this text. And it's this, why does Jesus have to touch the man's eyes twice? Why did it take two times? Because remember, this is, this is Jesus, the one who back in chapter 2 told the lame man, to pick up his mat and go home. This is Jesus who told the storm to be still. This is Jesus who walked across the water. This is Jesus who has healed people who were sick by the dozens, probably more than that. This is Jesus who took bread and took fish, took a sack lunch and fed 5,000. Earlier in this chapter, he fed another 4,000 thousand people. This is Jesus who in Mark chapter 5 took a little girl by the hand and said, who had passed away and said, little girl, get up. So why does it take Jesus two times to heal him? To heal this guy? Why does he need a second crack at healing uh, this blind man? Now then, I want to, uh, I have to give um, Abilene Christian University professor Randy Harris uh, a lot of credit because he is the one who opened my eyes, pun intended. He is the one who cleared up this text for me. And so for the next few minutes, I want to kind of lean on some things that, uh, that he said. And, you know, one of his great things, he has a, he has a strong passion for, uh, for freshman Bible majors. Okay, he just feels called to them. That's part of his ministry. And he tries to spend a lot of time with them. And he says, you know, he's reading this text and he sees this, this double touch healing. 
And he doesn't really understand why. And Mark kind of does that. He'll give you a story that you don't fully understand, but if you'll keep reading, eventually we might, we might gain some understanding. He said, so what he does, the first thing he does is when he doesn't really understand what's going on in a text, is that he poses it to his freshman. And so he, he reads the text with him. He says, okay, guys, ladies, what is it? Why do you think it took Jesus two times to heal this guy? And he says, these are the three leading answers that he has received uh, when asking this text to the freshman. The first one is this. Jesus had a temporary power outage. You know, he just, he wasn't feeling the spirit of the Lord that day. And for whatever reason, maybe he was sick, had a cold, whatever. He just wasn't feeling it, okay? So he's got a temporary power out. No, I don't, I don't think that one is right. The second one is this. You know, easy does it. He's got to just give him a little bit at a time because if he gives it to him all at once, he's going to be like Superman seeing through things. Okay? That one's got maybe a little more merit to it. Okay? Uh, but he says, you know, that one doesn't really do it either. And then the final answer is this. The guy's got spit in his eyes. That's why he can't see the first time. He's got spit in his eyes. Okay, now we didn't even talk about that. Jesus easily could have said, be healed. And be, you know, see, but he doesn't. He takes mud that he's made from spit and he wipes it in the guy's eyes. This is a very, very odd miracle that, that Jesus does. Okay, now then, those answers are, are good but they're not really satisfactory. So then it makes me wonder this. Could it be that there's something that we are not clearly seeing? Well, yeah, I think it is because, I mean, we still have this question hanging. You know, what's with the two times healing? What's with the double touch healing? But again, this is what Mark does. He tells one story that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but if we'll keep reading we'll see that there's an answer so he's given us no real satisfactory answer so far so let's just keep let's just keep reading notice um notice notice verse 27 jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of caesarea philippi and on the road he asked his disciples who do people say that i am they answered him john the baptist Others say Elijah, still others say one of the prophets. And then notice verse 29 right here. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And right there, we have to stop and we have to celebrate with Peter because this is the only time in the gospel he gets anything right. Okay, and we have to say yes Peter, you did it. You're not chewing on your foot for once in your whole time walking around with Jesus. You got it right. Okay, you've got, you've got the right thing. You see, he, he, he gets it. Now, if you'll remember, because we've, we've spent several weeks, I mean, this is week 13 that we have spent in our study of Mark. I don't know if you realize that or not. But we spent 13 weeks looking at these first seven and now into eight chapters, okay? And if you'll think back over it, what you might realize is that the first eight chapters are really one long meditation 
on the power of Jesus. Because think about what we've seen. We've seen Jesus display His power over the demons. We've seen Jesus display His power over sin, over nature. We've seen Him display His power over the law. And we have seen Him display His power over death. Okay, Peter has been with him for most of this stuff. Peter has seen it, and he's thinking, if this guy isn't the Messiah, then I don't know who is. Okay? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Here come all these answers. But he's like, no, no, no I'm not interested now in, in, in what they're saying. Those answers are fine. But now, what about you? Who do you say that, that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. Yay for Peter. He's got it right. But that still doesn't answer our question. Verse 30. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Verse 31. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is the first time in the gospel that Jesus has spoken openly, has spoken plainly about his death. And if you just listen, you can sort of hear the whole book pivot. Because up until this point right here, the whole thing has been about the power of Jesus. His power over all of those dominions that we just talked about. But from now, from this point forward, it's not going to be so much about Jesus' power. It's going to be about Jesus pointing and going toward the cross. Okay, that's what it's going to be about. Okay, so if you want to underline, if you like to underline things or, or mark on your Bible app, that's one of the verses to mark. He spoke openly about this. Because Peter claims he's Messiah. Jesus says, that's great, don't tell anybody. And he says, let me tell you something else. In a while, I'm going to be handed over. And I'm going to be beaten, and I am going to be crucified I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise three days later. Then Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. His shining moment lasts a whole two verses. Do you see that? Great, Peter, you got the right answer. You've done well to now. Oh, Peter, come on, man. He has the audacity... To pull Jesus aside and give him the correct version of the story. Okay? He's going to clarify. He thinks Jesus has missed it. Okay? He thinks Jesus needs some clarification. So he pulls him aside. He's like, hey, look, brother. Let me tell you something. That's not how this goes. Okay? The story is that Messiah, that's you. You show up. And it's great. And it's awesome. And you walk around and you heal a bunch of people. And then you pick the best people you can find. That's us. That's me. And we walk around and we help you. We're like your sidekicks. Okay? 
And then what you're going to do, as after you do all this cool stuff, like healing people and feeding thousands of people and raising the dead and doing all those cool things like that, then what you're going to do is you are going to kick Rome out of here. And guess what? Then you're going to be the king. And then you're, just because we're so close, you're going to set up 12 little thrones and we're going to sit on them next to you. That's the story. Now then, I don't know that that actually happened, but I imagine that's probably what Peter's telling him. You don't know the story. And so he thinks he's got to clear up Jesus' understanding of what's going on. Okay, now then notice verse 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. That's the sharpest rebuke in Scripture. It's not to a Pharisee. And and, and he lays some pretty harsh ones in Matthew 23. Okay, that whole chapter, Jesus is saying, woe is you. You know, he says some harsh things about the Pharisees and the way that they have handled people and the way that they're leading people away from God. But he never says, get behind me, Satan. But he turns to his main man, Peter, who thinks he understands the story and says, get behind me, Satan. Basically what he's telling Peter is, look, Peter, as long as you're thinking like that, you're on Satan's side. Okay? As long as you think this whole thing is about power and about control, you don't have the things of God in mind. And then we see it, then it comes clearly into focus. Because as I said, Mark loves to tell one story and then let a later story interpret it. And what we do is we realize that the double-touch healing was symbolic. Because who is it that sees but doesn't really see? It's Peter. Who is it that's blind, but it's not just the blind man, it's also Peter. Who is it that needs to be touched again by Jesus? It's not just the blind man. It's Peter. You see, Peter... Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's right about that. But he has completely missed the rest of the story. Okay, And this is another piece of the puzzle as to why Jesus always told people, including his own disciples, don't tell anybody. How many times have we read that line in the stories we've looked at so far? Somebody gets healed, don't tell anybody. Okay, Some miracle happens, some teaching happens, don't tell anybody. Of course, people don't listen, they all go do it anyway. And we wonder why, and we've, we've talked about why, and some people say, oh, well, it's a reverse psychology thing. If we don't tell them, then they'll just tell everybody. No, that's not why. We know that at least part of the reason is that Jesus didn't want to be known only as a miracle worker, okay? But right here, he gives us another indicator about what it is. Peter thinks this whole thing is about power, And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not about power. 
It's about going to the cross. And until you get that story straight, you're on the wrong side. Randy Harris, he says this. He says, they thought they had signed up for the power cruise, but instead they just found out they're on the death boat. Because Jesus is not about power. We've seen that when, they, when he does something and they try to grab him and they want to force him to be king. What does Jesus do? He blends into the crowd and gets away. Because Jesus did not come to enforce his power. If he did, I think his miracles would have reflected that. I think we wouldn't have seen the type of miracles that, that we saw. Let's keep reading. Verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. The interpretation, when we, you know, when we first look at it, the interpretation of this is a little bit tough. But now we back up and we kind of see what's happening. And now we realize that the, the application, while the interpretation is a little bit different, the application is smacking us right in the face. Okay? And it's if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, then guess what? It's not about prestige. And it's not about honor. And it's not about who gets to be first and who is the greatest and who gets to sit where and, and, and who gets to rule. If you want to follow Jesus, then pick up a cross and get in line. Because that's, that's what this is about. Jesus goes on, he says, For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose their life? What can anyone give in exchange for their life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of them when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We realize that there's more going on here than meets the eye. That as Mark is telling us this story, he's trying to show us something. He's showing us. And remember, this is Peter is the one that has told Mark the story. Mark's just writing it down. Okay? And as this story is told and unfold, we realize, or or Peter, it's revealed to us that Peter doesn't fully understand things. And that makes us have to pause and go, well, wait a minute. Maybe there's some things that I'm not fully understanding. Maybe I've misunderstood what this this whole gospel thing is about. And if you think it's about being first, and if you think it's about name it and claim it, if you think it's about health and wealth, then you have missed it. And Jesus is going to say something to us like, Hey, get behind me, Satan. Because that's the things of man. 
that's not, that's not the things of, of God. And so we see that Mark tells this story like he does because there's this symbolic meaning that Peter needed to have his eyes opened again. Peter needed to be touched again, needed some clarification about what the story really is about. And maybe that's true for us, that we need some clarification on the story as well. You see, it's one thing to follow the guy who's going around doing all the miracles. But it is a completely different thing to follow the guy who's going to take you to the cross. You see that? And that's heavy. Imagine what it was like for those guys. I mean, this had to be a tough moment for these guys. You know, I like how Randy puts it. These guys, they thought they'd signed up for the power cruise, and they just found out they're on the death boat. Like, wait a minute, can we, you know, can we get a refund? We've seen lots of crowds following Jesus. Other gospels record that the crowds eventually leave Jesus. They turn away from him. You know why? They say because what he's saying is too hard for us. His teaching is, is too difficult. You see, with this one story, Jesus reveals to us the true nature of his identity and the true mission of his followers. He clarifies it. And that mission is take up a cross. You see, the double touch healing is a reminder to us that sometimes we see and yet don't see clearly. That we look, but yet don't understand. It's a reminder to us that following Jesus isn't about power, but it's about accepting the shame and the humility of the cross. That it's about denying ourselves and following after Jesus as he lays down his life for all people. That's what it's about. Okay? That is a serious mark that Jesus leaves for us. Okay? So here it is. <clears throat> Very simply, Jesus left his mark by clarifying his followers' mission. Okay? They don't understand it. Jesus is Messiah. Great. Jesus, as Jesus, I'm going to die on the cross for everybody. No, 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 Jesus, you're not. That's not the way this goes. And Jesus says, oh yeah, that's the way this is. You're going to be with me. You pick up a cross and you bear that thing and you go die on it. That's, that's what this is. So Jesus clarifies the mission for his followers. That's the mark that he left. He gives us a, a clear indication of, of what that mission is. So here's how we leave our mark. We leave our mark by taking up our cross and following Jesus daily. That's how we leave a mark. What does that mean to follow Jesus daily? Well, it means to serve. 
It means to love. It means to humble ourselves, to put others first. So here's our question marks. Question one, am I suffering from spiritual blindness? And that's an easy thing to have. If we don't spend enough time in the Word, or if we maybe have been misled about what this following Jesus thing is really about, then we can have spiritual blindness. Second question, do I fully understand Jesus' mission for me? Do you recognize that it's not about me? Okay, and that church is not about me, that it's about it's about Jesus, number one, but then it's also about serving others, about putting others first, about going outside the walls and loving people as we love ourselves. Question three, are there tasks of my mission that I have been blinded to or willingly ignored? And maybe that one hits a little bit closer to home. Because sometimes I think maybe we're blinded to it, but I think maybe more often we know what the tasks are, we just choose not to do them. The tasks are humbling ourselves. I don't know that anybody actually enjoys that task. Because humbling yourself is a very, very difficult thing to do. It's about taking on the shame of Jesus. Now then, I went in a different direction with this toward the end of this text. But Randy Harris goes on and he says that what you realize is that the rest of the story really is about the shame of Jesus. Of course, he calls attention to the passion of the Christ, which probably all of us have seen. And in that depiction, you realize that Mel Gibson has grasped the pain of Jesus. But the gospel is not so much about the pain of Jesus, it's about the shame of Jesus. Jesus humbling himself. Jesus taking on the rejection, the scrutiny of mankind. Taking on sin that he did not deserve. And then dying on a cross, which was the most absolutely shameful way a person could be killed. It was meant to destroy your reputation. And Jesus took all of that on. You see, as a follower of Christ, our job then is to take on the shame of Jesus. What did he say? He said, if you are ashamed of me before people... I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Do you see a condition there? I like how Doug pointed out if a little while ago in communion because there are conditional things to salvation. There are conditions to following Jesus. It's not just, oh, Jesus is good. I don't have to do anything. There's conditions. Anytime you see an if in that kind of statement, then that needs to tell us That's a condition that I have to follow if I'm going to follow Jesus. And so it's about humbling ourselves. It's about taking on the shame of the cross. And it's about denying ourselves in order to to serve others. So that's the question. Have, 
Are there tasks that I'm blinded to or are there tasks that I am willingly, I'm having a willing blindness to, that I'm choosing to ignore? Question four. Am I willing to humble myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus wherever that path may go? It can lead you in some strange places. It can lead you in some tough places. But are you willing to go there? And then finally, are there things in my heart that are keeping me from doing these things? There's a, uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, it said the disciples were hardened in their heart. Jesus feeds 4,000. At the beginning of chapter 8, and he not only talks about the 4,000, he reminds them about the 5,000 because they forget some bread. Okay, and he talks about hardness in their heart. Okay, are there things in your heart that are keeping you from doing these things? Is there pride there? Because you can't humble yourself if you are living a prideful life. Does that make sense? Those things, they don't, they don't go together. Okay, and I'm not talking about, you know, pride in your family and you're proud of your church and that kind of thing. I'm talking about pride like I'm the greatest person ever and I don't do anything wrong and I don't care what you say, it's all about me. Pride. Okay, and if you are struggling with pride, then guess what? You're struggling with humility. Because those things, <clears throat> they, don't, they don't go together. They're mutually exclusive. Okay. So are there things in your heart that are keeping you from doing these things, from taking up your cross, from denying yourself, from following Jesus on a daily basis? And if the answer is yes, then I hope you'll recognize that maybe you see but don't fully see. I hope you'll recognize that maybe you've been touched by Jesus but you need to be touched again that maybe you are blind and you need to see clearly and that you will let Jesus have another touch in your life. That you'll let him clarify things for you.